Introduction to apologetics, then. What is apologetics? Um, as a seminary student, there are two jokes that are used so often that you, you, you can't even, when you're taking Greek, when you're taking Greek, everyone has to throw out the, oh, it's all Greek to me, one. And they think that's funny. <laughs> Uh, with apologetics, the jokes that you always get are, well, that'll help teach you how to apologize. Uh, okay. Um, what I say here, the word apologetics, we'll talk about how that, how that uh, joke originates. The word apologetics is described from the Greek word apologia. Um, you can see the, the spelling there, apologia, the Greek word is a technical legal term. So in Greek, this would have been a very specific term used in a courtroom, speaking of the defense that the accused would offer at a trial. So if you were uh, accused of a crime, you would go to court, and at court you would offer your apologia. This is your defense. That's, that's what the word means. Uh, for instance, consider Festus's comment to Agrippa about Paul. Uh, Festus says this, I answered the Jews that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. This is Acts 25.16. The word is used the same way throughout the book of Acts because you have reference over and over again to Paul being put on trial for various things. Um, the phrase, had opportunity to make his defense, translates this particular Greek expression, top on top, to apologias, um, uh, have opportunity to make a defense. Interestingly, at least to me, our term apology today means almost exactly the opposite of its etymological meaning. Right? When you say, I'm apologizing, what are you doing? Admitting guilt. Yeah. yeah, I did it. Whereas the Greek term means, I didn't do it, here's my defense. Um, language is weird, right? Language does weird things. Uh, whereas apologia is a defense against an accusation, our English term is, uh, term is an admission of guilt and a request for pardon. In passing then, we should note that apologetics has nothing at all to do with apologizing, right? So there you go. I, I put my heel on the throat of that joke and I'm trying my best to kill it. Rather, the study of apologetics is more closely related to the original meaning of the term. Apologetics is the study of the defense of the Christian faith. The term apologia is used in this sense in the New Testament. Okay, so we see this Greek word, apologia, being used in the very sense that we're going to use it tonight. Um, the, the life verse of the apologist, right? You've got people who are into apologetics. This is, this is the key verse. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. Apologion. There's your word. Apologia. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, so there you go. In the New Testament, the word... Uh, apologia, apologetics, is used in the, very, in the very sense that we're talking about it tonight. We are preparing here to be able to give an answer. When someone puts up an accusation against Christianity, would you be prepared to defend it? 
That's what apologetics is. Right? So the purposes of apologetics. Um, again, as I'm, as I'm talking, feel free to uh, raise your hand if you've got questions about anything. I like discussion. We've got a small group here, and so we can um, bounce, bounce question and discussion back and forth. I think it will make it a bit more profitable. Purposes of apologetics. So who, to whom, is apologetics addressed? Uh, when we do apologetics, who is it for? Uh, and I say here, apologetics is primarily directed to the unbeliever, and that makes sense. Apologetics aims to answer the unbeliever's challenges to the faith, and to present arguments to the unbeliever that ought to demand his assent to the truth of Christianity. We'll talk more specifically about what that means. Uh, I do say here, however, the study of apologetics is also immensely profitable for the believer. Right? And that's, you know, what I'm doing in this class here is not really doing apologetics like we traditionally think of it. But in the study of apologetics with you as fellow believers, I think the study of it is profitable. Even if you never have opportunity to do a, some sort of public defense of Christianity, I'm going to suggest that the study of apologetics is useful to you for at least three reasons here. First, the believer trained in apologetics is not easily shaken uh, by arguments against the validity of Christian theism uh, because he knows how to debunk those arguments. Okay? Um, and there are no shortage of arguments against Christianity in our culture today. Um, and and what, what's interesting, uh, at least to me, is that uh, anti-Christian arguments are becoming, and, and, and I'm going to explain what I mean by this, but are becoming more popular. Okay, and what I mean by that is that they're not becoming more well-known. But it isn't, uh, it's not scholars arguing against Christianity, but it's a movie arguing against the truth of Christianity. That's what I mean by popular. It's, it's intended more for a popular audience. So you have movies like The Da Vinci Code, for instance, and, and, and I'll just I'll tip my hand here. The problem with the Da Vinci Code, as far as apologetics is concerned, is not prime. And I don't know how familiar you are. How many of you read the book or watched the movie? Anyone? Okay. Um, you know, there's all this conspiracy theories that, that run throughout the book, and you know, everyone's all up in arms that you know they make this accusation that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and had a child and all this. Okay, I'm not saying that's a good thing, and, and Scripture certainly doesn't um, support that at all. The most lasting impact of something like the Da Vinci Code is the author of that book suggests that the Roman Catholic Church assembled the books that we have in our Bible to support their ambitions. You know, that, that they... They had an agenda, and their agenda was to suppress women and to put forth a specific theology. And so all of their people got together and had this meeting at which they, they picked the books that belong in our Bibles. Now, honestly, I don't think you're ever going to sit down across the table from someone and, and you're going to be presenting the gospel and they're like, oh, I can't believe that because Jesus married and had a child. But you will have people when you say, hey, let me show you what the Bible says about this, say, oh, you can't trust the Bible. Right? 
And, and those sorts of popular attacks on Christianity, I, the reality is those are shaking not only unbelievers, but also believers. You know, people who are in churches who who believe, who, you know, are, are, they, are, they are Christians, but they hear stuff like this, and, and, and they're real questions. You know, can we trust the Bible? How was the Bible really put together? Those are, those are good questions. Those are, those are meaningful questions. <coughs> Apologetics helps give the Christian confidence to answer those kinds of charges. Right? And we'll talk about uh, issues of canon uh, near the end of the class. A second... A believer who has studied apologetics is better prepared to share the gospel with those who do not believe, being confident that Christianity will withstand the challenges of the skeptics. Um, and this seems fairly obvious, so I'm not going to camp here, but the, the reality is the more confident that you are that Christianity is true, the more confident you are that you can go to someone, present the gospel to them, uh, and they're not going to be able to undermine the gospel. Right? Um, if, you are, if you are fearful about whether Christianity is really defensible, it becomes much harder to share the gospel with people. And so uh, studying apologetics helps us become more effective witnesses. And third, I, I added one here. This isn't in your notes. So if you're looking around for, where's three? Where's three? I, 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 I modified the notes. I, I keep adding things. Maybe I shouldn't do that. But let me, let me offer you a third reason that I think the study of apologetics is useful. Uh, I say here, the, but the study of a Christian theory of knowledge allows the believer to think in a truly Christian manner about even the most mundane of life's truths. Oh, I'm supposed to write that down? No. <laughs> no. You're supposed to ask you to repeat it. Yeah. <laughs> Five or six times. Yeah. 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 So, so the, the, the gist of it is that we're going to talk about two basically different approaches to doing apologetics. Okay? Uh, and and, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but one way is called evidentialism. The other way is called presuppositionalism. Okay? And I'm going to teach this course from a presuppositional uh, perspective. Right? I'll explain what that is later. One of the um, advantages of presuppositional apologetics is this. Um, I'll, I'll say this now, I'll defend it later. Nothing in this world can be what it is unless God has said it that way. Okay? Does that make sense? Let me illustrate it this way. I've used this one before in, in, in my, my classes. There's a vast difference between my knowledge of something and God's knowledge of something. Okay? So I know my car's out in the parking lot. Right? I know it's there. That's good. Does my knowing that my car's in the parking lot make it there? No. God knows that my car is in the parking lot. If God knows my car is in the parking lot, does that make my car be in the parking lot? No. And the answer is yes. Yeah, for me, you know yeah, if I know my car's in the parking lot, you know, I could be wrong. Someone could have carjacked my car while I was standing in here, right? But if God, if God knows my car's in the parking lot, my car's in the parking lot. 
Because God's knowing something makes it so. Here's, here's what that means. Every fact in the universe is what it is because God has said it that way. Which means... Yeah. Is that omniscient? Uh, it's, it, it's related to his omniscience. Okay. And, and, and it's related to God's omniscience in this way, that I know things, and this is getting a little heavy, but hang with me, because it's not going to be the only time it does this. <laughs> I know things because there's something outside of me, and I look at it, and I, I bring it in, you know, sense, experience, rationality. Somehow I get it into my head that that's, you know, that there's a chair back there, that my car's in the parking lot. So that thing in some way is prior to my knowing it. It's out there, I bring it in. Things aren't like that for God. The creation doesn't just exist out there and then God looks at it and learns. Because God doesn't learn. Right? The creation is the way it is because God has said so. Now, the implication of that, if, if you just start thinking about it, so you're sitting on the couch, and you know there's a leftover pizza in the refrigerator. Why is there a leftover pizza in the refrigerator, ultimately? Because I left it in there and I locked the door. And because God has said so. Now, that seems really trivial, doesn't it? That seems very trivial. But the reality is, truth is a Christian concept. And, and that's, we, we shouldn't be just like unbelievers when it comes to how we think about truth. Truth isn't just there, right? It's not just it is. It is because God has said so. I don't want to pursue that too deeply, but I hope you get just a little taste for the idea that once we start considering this, even our very knowing of things has to be done within the framework of Christianity. That we become, and so I, I continue here, and again it's not in your notes, in this way, the study of apologetics contributes to the process of sanctification in our lives, right? Sanctification is the process that we're all going through right now as believers, that we want to continually grow into the image of Christ. I want to continually conform myself to the will of God, part of that is recognizing that what God does permeates everything. There's nothing that exists in this universe that is outside of God's control. And one of the ways I recognize that is by submitting my knowing to God. That knowing is not something that I do independent of God, but to use the language of scripture, my goal as a knower is to think God's thoughts after him. Right? Um, and, and so we're going to talk about what that means. And, and I hope you see, uh, and, and, and you know, I'll, I'll give you a little preview here. If really knowing means to think God's thoughts after him, what is the situation of the unbeliever when it comes to knowledge? Well, the unbeliever refuses to do that, right? The unbeliever thinks he can know apart from God. Whether God exists or not, the unbeliever thinks it's me and that thing out there. Well, the reality is that thing wouldn't be out there without God. And if the unbeliever won't take God into his thoughts, he's actually cut off from really knowing. 
That's a little preview. All right. Getting deep yet? We, are we all together? Any thoughts or questions? If we take the first verse in the Old Testament, in the beginning, God created heaven and mm -hmm. earth, we can say yes because we know God said it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and the, the, the whole idea, and we're going to talk about this a lot next week, one of our big ideas in apologetics is going to be the creator-creature distinction and maintaining that. That God is primary and we are always secondary. And, and, and a lot of what we're doing in apologetics is confronting the unbeliever with his unwillingness to submit himself to God. That, that the one of the unbeliever's big problems is that he, doesn't, he wants to be creator. He does not want to acknowledge that God is a different thing than him. Uh, and so creation is going to play a big role in, in what we talk about here. Apologetics and evangelism. Okay, we're back in your notes here. Yes. What's the other? What's the presuppositional and the other? Evidentialism. It's actually going to be in your notes. We're going to. I think it's another page or so. So apologetics and evangelism. Okay. What is the relationship between doing apologetics and doing evangelism? So this this is our next question. Some have insisted. Okay, you want to put a name with this? Some, some of you may be familiar with the Christian author Francis Schaeffer. Okay? Schaeffer argues that apologetics is pre-evangelism. That, that really what you're doing in apologetics is um, answering objections so that you can present the gospel. But, but apologetics is just something you do in order to get to evangelism. All right? I would suggest, on the other hand, it's better to see apologetics as organically linked to evangelism and ultimately inseparable from it, uh, while recognizing that each discipline has a slightly different focus. This is a quote from Greg Bonson. Uh, you saw in your bibliography a number of books by Greg Bonson. Um, let me give you a little apologetics family tree here. Presuppositional apologetics. Um, the kind of the founder, the, um, the name to associate with presuppositionalism uh, is, is a uh, theologian named Cornelius Van Til. Cornelius Van Til. Three words. Um, a Dutchman. Uh, he has a, he has a uh, great uh, little piece called Why I Believe in God. He talks about growing up in Holland and he went to a Christian school in Holland, and he, they and the, the Christian school kids and the public school kids would sometimes get in fights. And, and he said, so this is the late 1800s, uh, he said that their parents strictly forbid them from using their wooden shoes as weapons of war. <laughs> I always love that story. So, so Cornelius Van Til was the first professor of apologetics at Westminster Seminary. Okay, Westminster Seminary. Uh, lived until the mid to late 80s, so um, fairly recent, um, fairly recent scholar. Uh, Francis Schaeffer studied under Van Til. Um, and then Greg Bonson, who I quote here, and I've got, like I said, several, um, several books from him in the bibliography. Bonson was another student of Van Til. Uh, one uh, particularly who, who I think has articulated Van Til's positions maybe even better than Van Til did. We'll talk about that. All right. So a quote from Bonson here. The key will be to recognize differences of degree
between these activities and not escalate them into categorical differences of kind. Let's talk about what that means. Both evangelism and apologetics hope for the conversion of the unbeliever. Such a hope is obviously the goal of the evangelist, right? When we're sharing the gospel with someone, what, is, what do we obviously hope? Well, that they'd be converted, right? That, that seems obvious. I, I do, do say here, however, the perpetual temptation of the apologist is to make winning the argument the goal, right? And I think we've all been there. Whether it's, whether it's about Christianity, whether it's about politics, whether, when you get into a discussion and it stops being about what it really ought to be about and starts being about winning the argument, right? And, and, and that's, uh, I think, particular. you know, if it's about politics, politics is important, but it isn't eternal. If it's about the gospel and we lose sight of what we're doing when we do apologetics and we start making it about winning the argument, we've really gone the wrong direction. And it is a temptation. I don't know if, uh, how many of you like debate. Uh, I'm, I'm a nerd. I've been a nerd ever since I was very small. Um, I used it when I was growing up. Um, my morning breakfast routine, I'd pour myself a bowl of cereal, grab an encyclopedia off the shelf, and read the encyclopedia as I eat breakfast. Okay, I, I am a full-fledged nerd. Um, I love debate. I think debate is just a blast. And the, the rush you get when you realize you've got someone totally cornered with an argument. I, I enjoy that. And, and that can be fun when you're debating something that's just, you know, whatever. But when you're, when you're defending Christianity and you let that attitude get the better of you, you I, I think you're sinning. I think I'm sinning. Uh, because the issue with, when you're talking to the unbeliever is not for him to see how brilliant you are or to see how wonderful your arguments are. It's for him to submit to your Lord. Yeah. Um, I would also submit that it's not just with the debate is not only between believer and unbeliever. Mm-hmm. It's also between Christians too. So. Sure. Yeah. So I see people beat down other Christians literally oh, all over, you know, stuff that I'm like, wow. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like yep. terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Really just crushes another Christian's faith, you know. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree. Um, so I want to, I want to, th- these are a few more thoughts on that thing, uh, on that topic then. Um, in relating apologetics so closely to evangelism, however, we ought to give attention to the specific goal of each. Uh, Mark Dever, it's pronounced Dever, it looks like Dever, uh, he has a little book called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. If you're interested in doing the work of evangelism, I would highly recommend that little book. It's, it's very, very good. A quote from there. Finally, one of the most common and dangerous mistakes in evangelism is to misinterpret the results of evangelism, the conversion of unbelievers, for evangelism itself, which is the simple telling of the gospel message. The Christian call to evangelism is a call not simply to persuade people to make decisions, but rather to proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance and to give glory, to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. Here's the key sentence. We don't fail in evangelism. If we faithfully tell the gospel to someone who is not converted, we fail only if we don't faithfully tell the gospel at all. So, so if I were to ask you, you know, you say, hey, I, I witnessed to a guy the other day, and, I, and if I were to ask, well, was, it, was that successful? 
Your answer should be, if you were faithful in presenting the gospel, yes, you have faithfully <coughs> presented the gospel. It, your, it, the results of that are not in your hands, right? And, and we can see the disastrous consequences in churches today when you confuse results with evangelism, right? Because if successful evangelism means someone has to make a decision, I am going to do everything I can to make people make a decision. And, and often that involves a lot of emotional manipulation and things along those lines. So we can't confuse those. In the same way, okay, so continuing the parallel, um, a similar misunderstanding of the task of apologetics is common. The result of a successful apologetic encounter is a person who becomes rationally convinced of the truth of Christianity. However, problems arise when we fail to distinguish between apologetics and persuasion. Okay, so here's a, this is an extended quote from Greg Bonson, on, on, uh, and I, I think this is very good. Some of you may be familiar with the Christian author R.C. Sproul. Okay, you've heard that name. Uh, this is actually taken from an audio debate between Bonson and Sproul on apologetic method. Sproul is uh, essentially an evidentialist. Okay? Bonson is a presuppositionalist, and they, they got together in the uh, early 80s uh, at Reform Seminary and had a debate. Uh, you can get that debate uh, from a website, www.cmfnow.com. Covenant Media Foundation is the name of the website. Um, and I think it's called something like a, deba a debate over apologetic methodology. Spoll um, and Bonson. Yeah, and, and you'd see the spelling of Bonson with the, the footnote there, B-A-H-S-E-N. Um, they charge you for it. I, you may be able to find it for free on the internet, but I, my guess is it's still copyrighted and technically you shouldn't download it for free to find it. <laughs> It costs like a buck ninety-nine or something like that to, to download. So Bonson says this: Apologetics is not mere persuasion. Much of the popular literature in the area of theistic and anti-theistic apologetics consists of highly polemical and emotional efforts at converting others. And to be sure, it is often our duty to seek to convince others of our own position. Sadly, however. These efforts too frequently take a form that substitutes psychological persuasion for careful and fair argumentation. Both believers and unbelievers are guilty of this, at least in my estimation, for it is a sad fact of life, okay, and this is, this is uh, undoubtedly true, it is a sad fact of life that logically poor arguments are often psychologically effective in convincing people of the truth of a position, right? Uh, regardless of what you think of their two positions, um, Barack Obama was a far better communicator of uh, mood in this last election, right? And, and it, it wasn't necessarily that he had better ideas than McCain, you know? Um, that's, I, I, I personally don't think so, but I, that's not relevant. It's not that he, would, he had better ideas or that he communicated his ideas better. There, there's all sorts of ways to communicate and get people on your side that don't involve careful, well-reasoned argumentation, right? Um, conversely, good arguments can be psychologically ineffective, right? You ever, you ever have a slam-dunk argument? You know, this, this is true, this is true, therefore this must be true, and the person's like, yeah, you know what, that may be, but I'm just not buying it. And you're like, come on, right? You, but it's true. Good arguments are often not persuasive. 
Um, and we may consequently find ourselves confronted by a moral dilemma when we discover that certain bad arguments and glib slogans will be found more convincing by a larger audience than what are, in fact, really good arguments. Right? And, and he, he goes on to say, and this, is, this raises the stakes, and when we, on top of this, judge the issue that is being disputed to be of one of high importance in our lives. Is the gospel high importance? Amen. Yeah, it's very high importance. Such as is the case in apologetics, we are especially tempted to put bad arguments into the service of truth. Right? The Christian apologist ought to be the one person on earth who will resist this temptation. For we only dishonor the truth and ultimately dishonor the Lord of truth when we use fraudulent and suspicious forms of argument in promoting the truth. So in the first place, apologetics is not mere persuasion. We may persuade a lot of people to become Christians on the basis of very bad arguments, but our task as apologists is to find good arguments, ones which will not be found out later to be fraudulent when someone with greater intellectual talent comes along to investigate. Right? I, I think if you understand what he said there, you have to agree with him. If mere persuasion is not a valid measure of apologetic success, what is? Right? So we talked about how do you know you, you had a successful evangelistic encounter? What? If you presented the gospel, right? How do you know you had a successful apologetic encounter? Here's what I'd say. Uh, if the believe, unbeliever remains unconverted, right? Our, our ultimate goal is that he'd be converted, but that's really what the Spirit does. We can't do that. So, from my perspective, as far as what I can accomplish, if he is not converted, I want him, at the end of the conversation, to realize he is, according to Romans 1.20, without excuse. In other words, I don't want him walking away thinking that he is justified in not believing Christianity. I want him to walk away knowing that, as I say here, he should realize that he maintains his rebellious unbelief. And that's an important combination of words there, because his unbelief is not just an intellectual thing. Right? It's, it's an, his unbelief is actually an act of rebellion. That's an act of the will or the heart. It's not just the head. His problem, the unbeliever's problem, is never just in his head. We're going to, as apologists, we're, what do we address? The head, right? My, as, as an apologist, I'm sitting down with a person and I'm answering his intellectual objections to Christianity. I'm giving him rational reasons. And, and I think that's important because God uses means to convert people, right? We were all converted by means. Someone preached the gospel. A friend shared the gospel with us. Those are means. <coughs> and, and, and rational argumentation is one of those means. But we have to recognize, at root, what we're dealing with is a heart problem. Um, and so, a successful evangelistic encounter is one in which the unbeliever, if he's going to remain in unbelief, walks away at the cost of having any claim to rationality. In other words, he has to walk away knowing that in not believing Christianity, he is not entitled to any claim of rationality whatsoever. Okay, and we're going to talk about why that is. Okay. We must also realize that if the unbeliever is retaining his unbelief for irrational reasons, okay, in other words, 
Here's an irrational reason. He hates God. And how many unbelievers hate God according to Scripture? All of them. Right? So we present all of these rational reasons, and he says, okay, I see your argument, I can't get around your argument, but I'm still not buying in. The task of apologetics proper is done there. Okay? Because apologetics is about presenting a rational defense for Christianity. Once a person has realized that their objections to Christianity are irrational, you can't give them more arguments. <laughs> you need to confront their heart at that point. And, and that's, that's evangelism. We, we do that. Now, here's the question. In a real conversation, where does apologetics end and where does evangelism start? In a real conversation, you're doing one and the other and back and forth, and, and, and they're just all blended together. And that's why the pre-evangelism idea is probably a little misleading, right? In a real conversation, when you're sitting down with an unbeliever, you know, you start presenting him the gospel. Well, that's evangelism. And, and, and partway through, you know, just as you get to the cross, he's like, yeah, but what about the flood? I don't buy that. <laughs> you're like, wait a minute, I wasn't talking. And so you talk about the flood, and then you go back to the gospel. And, and you know how these conversations go, right? Um, and that's why we always have to be ready to give an answer. All right, an apology for apologetics, point three. An apology for apologetics. And again, apology in the sense that we're talking about. So an apology is a defense. So I'm going to defend apologetics here. Uh, I have a friend of mine, uh, just, just yesterday I think it was, he posted on his blog a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. Uh, but this particular quote gives me a little bit of heartburn. Uh, Spurgeon said something like this. Um, something like this. This isn't an exact quote. The gist of it was, we don't need to defend the Bible. You know, the Bible is a sword, and the Bible is like a lion. Defend it, it's just, defending the Bible is like defending a lion. What do you do if you want to defend a lion? You just open the cage and let it out, brother. Amen? Right? And, and there is a very well-intentioned, and, and don't get me wrong on this. I'm, I'm not mocking this idea. Um, a very well-intentioned idea that the Bible doesn't need to be defended. No, we don't need to defend it. Well, let me, let me just point you to Scripture on this, all right? Um, I, I note here at the beginning of the next paragraph, we have already noted 1 Peter 3.15, right? It tells us to always be ready to make a defense. Okay, make an apologia. Um, the life verse of the apologist. Paul also claims, Philippians 1, verse 16, that the defense of the gospel was an important part of his calling and is grateful that the Philippians accompanied him in the work of defending the gospel. Philippians 1, 7. So you, you know, if you want to look at those verses, Philippians 1, 6 and 7, Paul says very specifically, you know, I am set for the defense of the gospel. And then he rejoices. And, and you also join me in the defense of the gospel. Right? And so Paul thought that this was an important task for the Christian. I would suggest also, even without th both of those, uh, verse 6 and 7, use that Greek term again, apologia. Right? Um, even without referring to texts that use the term apologia, we see many passages in which God's messengers, most notably Paul, Use argumentation and reason to present the claims of the gospel to the unbeliever. 
Here we should especially note Acts 17, which is Paul's address to the Athenians on the Areopagus. Right? It's a very well-known passage. Paul's wandering among all these idols, and he is just, he is just um, stirred in his spirit. He has to uh, confront the Athenians about their idolatry. And he, you know, he says, Men of Athens, I see that you are you know, very religious, very superstitious. There's some debate about exactly what Paul is saying there. Um, but then he begins to offer a defense of Christianity. And Paul does that pretty much everywhere he goes, right? He goes into a new city, and where's the first place that he goes? He goes to the synagogue. And he's going to present to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you think that's going to take some defending? <laughs> yeah, it is. Now, in, in a sense, what Paul is going to do there is preach the gospel, unleash the lion, right? And when we do apologetics, we are setting forth the word of God on the unbeliever, okay? That, that is ultimately where the power of apologetics comes from. Um, but the suggestion that the study of apologetics is worthless, I, I think actually uh, flies in the face of some direct statements of scripture. Uh, I have another quote here from Bonson. It is obvious that God does not need our inadequate reasoning or our feeble attempts to defend his word. Right? We would all agree with that. And we should remind ourselves of that. Right? Because sometimes studying these arguments are pretty heady stuff. You, know, you, you study this and you're like, oh man, I've got a great, I know exactly what to say. You know what? God doesn't need us. And that's important to remember. But, so, he says, the necessity of, def of apologetics is not divine necessity. Right? It's not that God needs us. God can surely do his work without us. The necessity of apologetics is a moral necessity. God has chosen to do his work through us and has called us to it. Apologetics is the special talent of some believers, the interested hobby of others, but is the God-ordained responsibility of all believers. Right? How, to how many people, 1 Peter 3, are you are supposed to be ready to make a defense? That's all of us. That isn't, you know, if you, you could try to argue if that were in First Timothy, well, that's a pastoral epistle, that's directed to the That's in First Peter. He's just writing to the church. I will add this, just very quickly, because we still have a number of things to get through. The verse says that we should be ready to give an answer for anyone who asks what? The reason for the hope that is in us. Which means that one of the things we need to do as apologists is live in a way that make people question our hope. All right? I'm stealing from John Piper here. All right? um, how do you live so that people question your hope? Well, we need to talk just very quickly about hope. Hope is, our hope is what we set our confidence on for our security in the future. Right? That's what our hope is. Um, what does the world hope in? What, what is the number one thing that the world hopes in for its security in the future? Possibly, but, but if I'm going to say, I want to know that I'm going to be secure in the future, what am I going to literally, give you a clue, bank on? Money, right? If, if I want security, I want to know that, that I've got money. That's going to keep me, you know, if things go bad, if I've got this, I might be able to make it. 
There are other things that the world puts its hope in. I would suggest that's the number one thing, particularly in a materialistic society like ours. The number one way that you can live so that people question your hope is to live so that people realize that your hope isn't set on money. And how do you do that? Well, you don't work the same way. You don't, you don't do everything you can to get another dollar like the other guys in the office. You give money away. You know, these are things that show, you know, hey, this missionary came in and he wants to put up a church in India and it's $10,000 to build the whole church building. And I've got this money that I can give to him. That's living in a way that make it, makes an unbeliever go, you're not hoping in the same thing that I'm hoping in. Right? That isn't the only thing. Money isn't the only thing. But it's a big way to live so that people question your hope. And when they question your hope, then you'd be ready with an answer. Four. Uh, I've added a section here. All right? Here's another big block, because I don't have this Van Tillen difficulty of understanding apologetics in your notes, right? All right. When I moved up here, I sat down with Pastor Thomas, uh, and he made a, he made a uh, comment to me. He's like, so are you going to be the one that makes Van Tillen understandable to congregations? Uh, the gauntlet has been thrown down. Van Tillen is very, very difficult to understand. Um, For a number of reasons. We're not going to read much of any Van Til in this class. Um, I will say this. If you want to read Van Til, or if you want to understand Van Til's apologetic, don't read Van Til. Please don't read Van Til. <laughs> read Bonson. Uh, particularly, if you, want, if you want one introductory book on apologetics, Bonson's book, it's in your bibliography, always ready, uh, would be the one. Um, I, I think a very close second uh, would be John Frame's Apologetics to the Glory of God. Both of those are in your your, your bibliography. You can get them both on Amazon. Um, why is Van Til so hard to understand? Why is it so hard to understand presuppositional apologetics? Well, for Van Til in particular, one, he wrote a ton of stuff. Two, his style of writing is terrible. It's just very hard to understand. Um, Van Til was trained in philosophy. All right? Now, we're going to end up doing a decent amount of philosophy in here. If you're not into philosophy or you don't think in philosophical categories, it, it's, it's like if you hadn't taken geometry in, in 40 years and you're supposed to take geometry again, and, and you're like, okay, I know some of this stuff, but it's just hard to get the gears turning that direction, that kind of thing. That's, how, that's what reading Van Til is like. If you're not accustomed to thinking uh, philosophically, it makes it hard. I'll suggest another one. We talked earlier about how what, it's, what it means to think Christianly about my car being in the parking lot. How many for you, that was a really different idea? You've never heard something quite like that before. Van Til challenges how you think about everything. In, in a really, I mean, okay, hold on a second. I'm not following. Let me think about that again kind of thing. Uh, my goal is to try to make this as, as, as accessible as I can, knowing that the subject matter can be a, a challenge. Okay? Um, where you help me is asking questions. Uh, even if it's, 
I don't know exactly what my question is, but that didn't make any sense. Can you, can you explain that a different way? Okay, and I, I totally understand, because for me, it took me several times through this to really get a handle on what's going on. Um, this, is, this course is really an introduction to, to what can be a, a very, very uh, fruitful study. Um, quickly, um, the two ways of doing apologetics. I'm going to talk about evidentialism and presuppositionalism. All right. Two ways of doing apologetics. Let's start with evidentialism. An evidentialist apologetic um, goes something like this. Uh, I want to talk to the unbeliever. I want to defend Christianity. He's got questions about Christianity, accusations, it's it, Christianity conflicts with science, or miracles are impossible, or any one of the various accusations that an unbeliever could raise against Christianity. The evidentialist says this. What do, what do, what does the, unbe what do the unbeliever and I agree on? What kind of things do the unbeliever and I... Well, we both agree that um, sense experience helps us learn things, right? And that, that if we study the evidences... Um, you know, there's logical conclusions that we can come, from, come to from the evidence, right? Um, so I'm going to sit down with the unbeliever. This is the evidentialist talking again. I'm going to sit down with the unbeliever, and I'm going to give him evidences that what Christianity claims is true. Um, so, for instance, an example of a sort of evidentialist argument is this. The unbeliever says, I don't believe that a dead man could rise from the dead. And the evidentialist says, well, I, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the evidence for the resurrection. Let's talk about the evidence for the resurrection. What sort of things are evidence for the resurrection? Believers. Okay. In what way? The multitude of believers around the world, if it was a lie, sure. the religion would have died. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and, and the, the even maybe the fact that the disciples were willing to die for this, or that alternate explanations, just that they fall flat, right? The idea that um, the disciples hallucinated, or, you know, that you, get, you get some of these other alternative explanations, and they just, don't, they just don't make any sense. And so really, if you look at it, the best explanation for the evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, that's evidentialism. Um, and, and, and there is some value to that. Let me introduce presuppositionalism to you. I'll back up and explain some of the problems with evidentialism. We'll introduce some terms and call it a night. All right? Presuppositionalism says this. Unbelievers, believers, everybody have basic beliefs that determine how they think about everything else. Right? You, you have some basic beliefs, and you may not even be really, you may not even think about them regularly. You, they're just so ingrained as assumptions that, but they, they order everything else. So, for instance, um, we'll go back to the, the, the resurrection. Um, so, so the unbeliever says, I don't believe in the resurrection, right? And we, go, and we give them all these evidences. Look, 
Jesus of Nazareth lived. Here's all the evidence that there was a man named Jesus who lived in, you know, he's from Nazareth. He lived during this time, and here's some archaeological evidence. Here's some uh, guys who lived during that time who make reference to him. See, Jesus lived, and he says, okay, I buy that. And you say, look, he, he died on a cross, uh, and, and here's all the evidence that he rose from the dead. And the unbeliever goes, oh, that's, that, okay, you know what? That is very interesting. And you've got some great evidence there. I'll buy it. Jesus of Nazareth lived and died and rose again. And so he accepts that. Does he, on the basis of accepting that, need to accept that supernatural things can occur? If he accepts that a resurrection happens, does he have to accept that supernatural things happen? The answer is no, he doesn't. Because what he can say is, there are all sorts of things that probably from the beginning of your life till now you didn't believe were possible, right? That you have discovered are possible. That, that if, if, I, if I told someone 400 years ago that I'm capable of doing, you know, X, whatever that thing is that technology enables us to do today, he would say, you're crazy. That's, that's supernatural, right? I can, I can talk to my wife from 500 miles away, and, and she can hear everything I say, and I can hear everything she says. And, and the person 400 years ago would say, what are you, some sort of magician? Yeah, my magician's name is Verizon. <laughs> exactly. The reality is, maybe some, some sort of natural causes allows dead people to come back to life. Maybe, right? Is it likely? No, it's not likely, but maybe, maybe. And, and you see what an evidentialist apologetic does. Has the unbeliever walked away without excuse? If I give him all these evidences and he says, okay, I buy it. Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm still not going to buy Christianity. Has he walked away without excuse? No, he has an excuse. Maybe I'm still right. Right? You see that hole you've left. What, a, what evidentialist apologetics does is tries to meet the unbeliever on the unbeliever's own worldview and presenting unbeliever evidence that's acceptable on his worldview, right? Every piece of evidence that's acceptable on the unbeliever's worldview, he can take without leaving his worldview. Does that make sense? Any piece of evidence that's acceptable on the unbelieving worldview is evidence that means he doesn't have to leave it. So what we have with presuppositionalism is the recognition that, that apologetics is really about the conflict of worldviews. It's not about the conflict over how we interpret the evidence. It's a conflict over what things count as evidence in the first place. Right? Because we do the very same thing. The, the, the unbeliever comes to us and says, any neutrally minded person would look at all this evidence and clearly see that the, the earth is billions of years old and that evolution happened, right? And they would say, that is just a neutral look at the evidence. And we say, oh, you're so biased. And they say, oh, you're so biased. You know what? We are both biased. So how did two biased people talk to each other? That's what presuppositional apologetics is all about. Because it's, it, it, so it's a recognition that apologetics is not about interpretation of neutral evidence 
because none of the evidence is neutral. And, and we recognize this already as Christians, and this is what we were talking about earlier. As a Christian, why is my car in the parking lot? Because God has said so. It, it, there is no just is. Van Til's language is this. There are no brute facts. Right? There are no facts that are just out there that I can see and that the unbeliever can see. Those facts come pre-interpreted. Those facts are part of a bigger framework. And who is the one who gives those facts their meaning? In a Christian worldview, it's God. And knowledge is about my thinking God's thoughts after him. In the unbelieving framework, who is the ultimate uh, determiner of what a fact means for the unbeliever? Himself. And this is the con and what we're going to do, okay, so here's a here's a preview of what we're going to do in future weeks. We're going to show the unbeliever that if he assumes that he can take that role, his whole worldview will come crashing down on itself. Not like I'm not saying his whole life, like oh his life will be a mess, his wife will, you know, do this or his kids will do this. I'm saying his thought, his his very way of thinking about the world, he can't support it. So he'll say, I'm the final reference point for truth. And I'm going to say, do you know everything? And he's going to say what if he's honest? Clearly no. And, 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 and here's the problem. If you don't know everything, it may be that the next fact you encounter undermines everything else you already say you know. And so you can't know anything at all, Mr. Unbeliever. That's presuppositionalism. You see how devastating that is? If that's true, and I'm going to show in, in future weeks why that's true, if I'm right about that, when the unbeliever walks away, he has walked away, if he walks away from Christianity, he's walked away realizing that he has to give up all rationality to forsake Christianity. He cannot rationally reject the Christian faith. And, and, and there's all sorts of other things he has to give up. He has to give up any claim of morality. He has to give up any claims of anything that requires an ought. He can't justify if he's the final reference point. As Christians, we, we presuppose two things. God is and that he's spoken. God is and that he's spoken. Those are our ultimate presuppositions. Nothing can contradict that. But if I presuppose those things, I can think rationally about the world. And so, when the unbeliever is arguing with me and he's trying to use rationality, he's borrowing from my worldview. And what I'm going to show him is he doesn't have a right to those things unless he comes over to my worldview. And that's conversion. That, that's presuppositional apologetics. Right? I have a glossary of terms for you at the end there. We're, we're past time here. Uh, epistemology is probably one of the big ones that we're going to talk about. We've been talking epistemology all night. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do I know things, right? Uh, and that's going to be a major subject of, of discussion here. I'll, I'll stop now. Do you have any questions, any thoughts about what we've covered so far? I hope I've kind of whetted your appetite for what's to come.